Welcome to the Proclaim Peace Podcast. I'm Jennifer Thomas. And I'm Patrick Mason. And this is the podcast where we apply principles of the gospel and read the Book of Mormon to become better peacemakers. Hey, Jen. Hello, Patrick. I am so excited to be here. I am so excited about this project. I know, me too, me too. If we think back to our last episode we with uh, Emma Petty Adams, we were talking about w- really what we hope to accomplish in this first season of the podcast uh, that we're calling the Book of Mormon for Peacemakers. And today's going to really be the first day that we really start to dive into the, the book itself, especially with, with First Nephi, the, the, the first book in, in the Book of Mormon. Jen, I'm just curious, how many times do you think you've read First Nephi in your life? Um, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that question because it would imply that I have read the Book of Mormon thousands of times. Um, there's not a direct correlation with the right. number of times I've read those first few verses and the number of times I've finished the book. Though I have finished the book a lot, and I have to say that It has been a really remarkable experience as we've launched this project, in spite of the many, many, countless, honestly, times that I have read the Book of Mormon cover to cover, just reading it with this new lens, reading it kind of following President Nelson's counsel to be a peacemaker and saying, what can I find in this text that will help me do that? It has given me a whole new appreciation for what, right up front, Nephi is trying to teach us, and then ultimately through the whole text, what God is trying to communicate to us as as people. Yeah, I've had a very similar experience. I mean, I'm just so struck by, or have been struck by, right out of the gates, this is a book that narrates all kinds of conflicts coming at it from lots of different angles, mostly within a family, uh, which is where most of us, you know, our deepest relationships that, that last the longest. And our hardest conflict, right? Sometimes our most painful conflict. Yeah. Exactly. So we've got uh, conflict between spouses, between parents and kids, between siblings, right? All, all of these different vectors, not to mention Nephi and Laban. We will talk about Nephi and Laban uh, in, in, a, in a later episode, so uh, uh, stay tuned for that. But, but just all these different vectors of conflict. Yeah, and I think that as I've been reading, particularly with the lens to family, thinking about the lens of family conflict, right? Thinking about how families behave and interact with each other and what some of the consequences are of that. I just keep thinking of the the Leo Tolstoy quote from Anna Karenina, which is basically that happily, happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And I think if you look at the Book of Mormon, that really plays out there, right? Sadly, we don't see a lot of stories of happy families, probably because there's not a lot to tell. A happy family just feels like it's working. But I think there's something important we can take away from that. I think by including unhappy families, including conflict, I think God is telling us this is where the learning happens, right? We're not here to judge as readers. We're here to learn from these experiences and to figure out how we can create our own nondescript happy families that nobody wants to write about. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, yeah, we get that sense like the the happiest time in the Book of Mormon, the most peaceful time is fourth Nephi. And it's like a few <laughs> verses long. Right? It's 200 years it's of great. peace. And it's like, uh, not, nothing to say here. Let's let's go we, back to we'd war. We'd like a right? little bit more of an explanation of how that looked, right? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know what, what those families actually looked like. But 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 I, it is one of the things I appreciate about the Book of Mormon and very much feel like when, when, when prophets have said it's written for our day, right? That, like, it's written for me and, and my family, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I grew up in a family with four boys, kind of like, you know, uh, Nephi, Sam, Laman, and Lemuel. Uh, we did not try to kill each other. We did not uh, get, get, get to that point. But, but I, I know what that's like to be in a family with conflict. And I think everybody knows what that's like. And, and so the Book of Mormon gives us that very real view. Yep. And also, as a mother of four boys, 
I'm here for Soraya, right? Like (laughs) years ago, I remember when my children were reasonably young and just sort of entering their teen years, I read this hysterical podcast by a man who was explaining the teenage boy brain. And he said, if you wonder what they're thinking, anytime they come into a conflict, there's a voice inside our head that says, have you tried violence? And um, (laughs) that was really super helpful to me as I was raising these boys where I'm like, okay, so there's a voice and I've got to be an alternative voice that says, maybe try this. So, (laughs) right. And I think that's what we're going to try and do throughout this entire podcast, right? Uh, Because there are are lots of voices in our heads, whether it be the inner voice or sometimes external voices. Have you tried tried violence, right? Have you tried violence? Have you tried escalating the conflict? Have you tried attacking somebody? Have you tried, you know, all these kinds of, uh, there's lots of different kinds of violence, rhetorical violence, you know, not not just physical violence, emotional violence. So we want to give some people some tools. And 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 I really believe and have just come to appreciate more and more the way that the, the, the Book of Mormon both outlines some of the some of the challenges, some of the destructive conflicts that are just natural as a part of human beings making decisions, but also offering some ways out and, and giving us some wisdom as to how to do better. I completely agree. There are really beautiful examples here of how we can do better. And we've talked about this in this first episode, but I really think we have to take the prophets that wrote these books at their word when they say we were imperfect and we want you to learn from us. And the biggest credit we can do, they made a lot of sacrifices to get these books to us and to um, take them at their word and say, I am going to take this scripture seriously and I am going to, to figure out, mine it for the lessons so that my me as a person in my relationship with God, me as part of a family, me as part of a society, I'm not contributing to these same problems, but I've been given opportunities to learn from other people's really tragic mistakes. Yeah. So we'll talk over the next couple episodes about some of these dimensions. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover every verse and every every chapter in in the book, but we really want to focus, I I think, in a couple of places where where that really matter for for people today. So interpersonal conflict, the the conflicts that we have, especially within our families. And then in in our next episode, we'll talk about forgiveness. Uh, How do do we reckon with those kinds of things? And and as, as we dive into today's episode, you know, I was really struck by the the interaction between Le- Lehi and Sariah in First Nephi chapter five, and I don't think it ever it had ever struck me in quite this this way before. You know, we always t- talk, and I think the kind of traditional narrative or the traditional reading of this chapter is Sariah's complaining, Sariah's murmuring. She needs to be kind of corrected by her husband so that she she get gets back on board. But as I read those verses carefully, and and I want to recognize there's lots of ways to read this. This is the great thing about Scripture. It can be read differently and also recognize that the culture back then is so different than our culture now, right? So just marriages and families and every assumption about the way that men and women related to each other is just very different than than the 21st century. But still, even with all that, I saw at least some clues or or, or some hints as as to what could look like some healthy conflict within marriage, you know, so, so think about this, like, so the boys have been gone for who knows how long, right? Or they're grown up. Yeah. Everybody knew this was going to be dangerous. Uh, yep. They haven't come back, obviously, longer than than what Soraya had calculated in her, in her head for how long it, it should have been. I, I don't come. I don't blame her one bit for complaining about this situation. I, I would have been. It's very human. Right. And and so I think in any relationship, especially a marriage, it's important for people to be honest about their, their feelings. And she so she is. She's honest with her husband rather than bottling it up. Right. She talks with her husband and. 
And I, so I appreciate that honesty and vulnerability and she's mad at him, right? That, that, that's a feature of, of any marriage. And, and then I, I appreciate actually the way he responds. Again, I, th- I think normally we, we, we read this as a kind of rebuke of, of her. I, I have read it that way for years, but this close reading, I completely agree with you. It's different, right? Yeah. He says, I know that I'm a visionary man. There's a kind of like self-awareness yep. there. Like, hey, my visions, like, I, I have to be true to myself, right? I have to be true to, to the voice that I've heard, this revelation that I've received. I've brought us out into the wilderness. Again, there's, there's, there's you know, some kind of hierarchy or he's clearly leading the family, but, but he doesn't retaliate or counterattack. He doesn't browbeat her. Uh, he, he doesn't condemn her. He, he, he doesn't tell her she's wrong. Exactly. I, I read him as basically saying, look, I know what I'm asking is hard. You know, here we are. This this is really tough. Um, but I also still really believe that God's going to provide for us. All right. And so so I, I actually kind of appreciate this story. And, and I just read it a different way th- this time. Well, and one of the things that I love about that is I, I agree, I read this so differently and I had never read this story in the same way. I'd read it traditionally the way you explained it. Like she's complaining and he is like, no, 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 let me explain to you why you're wrong. But I don't think it's that at all. And visionary is such an interesting word there, right? Because visionary is awesome. It's amazing. Visionaries are the people that move us forward, but they often have like the least connected relationship with reality. We need visionaries, right? They're the people that push us forward, but visionaries have got to be kind of hard to live with. And I think that he's claiming that. And he's like, I get that this is a hard thing about me. And now let me explain to you why I think this is going to be better for our family overall. And that he doesn't, and I love that they use the word over, I think a couple of times where he says he he did it to comfort her. So he wasn't mm-hmm. to fix her or to, to make her understand how he was right or to justify himself. But clearly his whole framework of approaching her was one of comfort, which is exactly what I think we all want our primary relationship to do for us. And what's interesting to me also is that we know that Nephi is telling this story retroactively years, years later. And yet the thing that he captures from that, and we don't know if it's because he captured that because he had the story in his father's own voice you know, that he was able to read that we are not. But clearly what what comes out to him in that is that there was an attempt to comfort there, even years later. That's the thing that yeah, has stuck with him. That's what he remembers. And I yeah. really, really appreciate that. Yeah. So, I mean, you and I could keep talking could. about this or we could bring in somebody who's actually an expert <laughs> on uh, family conflict. <laughs> it's better than we <laughs> are. So let's do that. Okay. So we are um, delighted to have us as our special guest today, Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Uh, Jennifer earned her PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College, and she's been in private practice ever since, I guess, 2007. Uh, through individual and couples counseling and a series of very popular online courses, Um, Many of you have probably participated in those. She focuses on empowering couples to create stronger and happier relationships. We can't think of anyone better to help us make sense of these family conflicts in First Nephi. And I think this is a perfect transition point. We've been talking about a marriage. And so let's get right into the text with her and hear her thoughts about it. We are so grateful to have her on our show. Jennifer, can we start by asking you a question that we ask all of our visitors here on this podcast? And that is... Peace is such a nebulous concept, and we were hoping if you could help us at the start of this conversation by sharing with our listeners how you define peace personally, either broadly or just for the purposes of this conversation about families. 
Okay, it's a great question and a little bit, I'm just sort of thinking about it on the spot. Let me start with what I think it isn't. It isn't the absence of difference. It's not the absence of conflict even. Um, I think it's finding a way to really be able to accept difference in ourselves, in others, and to work collaboratively towards a shared goal. It's, you know, I think the body of Christ metaphor is such a beautiful one. To me, that's emblematic of peace, that we are playing different roles, understanding things from different perspectives, but working together and having no, you know, not in ever in the position, I have no need of thee, right? So... I love that. I love that sense of, of working collaboratively on working through the conflicts that are just kind of inevitable. They're, they're just part of life. Uh, they're just part of what it means to have lots of human beings occupying the same planet, uh, let alone the same household. That's what I think is so interesting as, as we get into the Book of Mormon. Right up front, we're introduced to a family. Right. Uh, rather than like in the beginning or, or something like that. Right. Right up front, yeah. we were introduced to a family with with real people, with uh, parents and with kids and brothers and who who are in conflict. And we're just all of a sudden we kind of land uh, in the middle of this. And so as you think about this, this um, as first Nephi kind of sets up. Uh, this family in in conflict. What immediately jumps out to you as you as you read this story about about these characters, these people? Well, there a couple of things, and I, you know, I was saying to my husband, this is going to be a tricky podcast in some ways because we sort of learn to not ever critique uh, church leaders, script, scriptural heroes, and and even though we're told the prophets are always, per, uh, you know, real people and human and make mistakes, we don't really believe it. We don't yeah. like to believe <laughs> it. And, and I think that's a little bit part of the problem in creating peace is that we very easily as humans think in terms, in binary terms, one, someone's good or someone's bad. I can even do it when I'm working with a couple. My mind will go to who's the good one, who's the bad one. I mean, it's just so dumb. I'm like, <laughs> knock it off. You know? <laughs> it was very easy to think like that. And so it's a little uncomfortable of a podcast because we're sort of taught to just see the scriptural text as Nephi and, and Lehi are obviously the good ones. Laman and Lemuel are obviously the bad ones. And uh, we want to think of ourselves as being like Nephi, of course, uh, rather than what I think is that human beings are both good and evil. We're capable of both. And I don't mean we're equally good and equally evil. I mean, but, and our choices matter, but we're capable of both. And so when we just vilify someone who's different than us, which we easily do, and we do it very much in our society now and in politics and so on, we interfere with the ability to actually learn from each other and create real peace. So I think what sort of jumps out at first is in this narrative written by Nephi, it's really written in more of a binary way. You know, I, I did the Lord's will. These guys didn't, right? And now we have the mess we've got. You know? And so that stands out. It's very binary in, in terms of that. And then it's also very hierarchical. It's not really collaborative. It's not about this family working together to fulfill a, a task, a goal that they've been called to do. It's more in terms of, some people getting the information, others not. Those that don't follow 
in line are the bad ones. You know, Soraya's bad for murmuring and doubting at some point, but it doesn't appear that she's privy to the same information and is just expected to go along. And so hierarchical relationships are very human. We do them very easily, but in the work I do, I teach people that they show them that they do them and how they interfere with intimacy, collaboration, and peace in relationships. So this is something really interesting that I would love to jump off at because there is this point of conflict. You're talking about it when there's a point in the scriptures when both Sariah murmurs, right? And we've got Lehi who responds to her with comfort. We see that in the scriptures. He says, and you know, Nephi is telling this story and he says, you know, Lehi responded after the manner, after manner that offered comfort to her and kind of brought her along. And then right immediately thereafter, we see him in conflict with his brothers and he points out their wrongness. And Nephi, by the way, let's stipulate is absolutely right. Everything that he says is, is technically doctrinally, you know, correct, but it doesn't have that same effect on his brothers, right? They don't get to a place where they can um, hear the truth of what he's saying. So, so it struck me as I was reading that chapter that there are real hidden lessons there about the way that people who are in possession of truth can share that truth in a way that meets other people's needs, assuages their concerns, you know, helps, brings them along, or a way that doesn't do that and, and maybe the result isn't as great. Is Are there some examples from your, you know, experience that you could share with our listeners about how the mechanism of delivery is sometimes as important as the truth that you're delivering? right? What, what is the underlying in the relationship that helps us deliver truth to loved ones in a way that they can hear it and that the relationship can support it? Well, so again, I, this is kind of an off the cuff, so I'm trying to see if I can hold the complexity here and, and speak it in a simple way. But again, it has to do with this idea of hierarchical relationships. And there are healthy hierarchies in, rela- in, in families. Parent-child is a healthy hierarchy. But the hierarchy exists to facilitate the autonomy and the agency of the younger person. So it's not about just getting them to do what you say. It's not unilateral control. It's basically giving enough structure, consequences, you know, uh, rules that facilitate the development of that child so that they can take on greater and greater autonomy, knowledge, and wisdom. Um, And so it's needed. There's an inherent hierarchy. Where I get a little more uncomfortable is when it's like, you know, how did Nephi get it? And why is he condescending to his brothers, right? And, and so because that energy is there, it encourages the rebellion and the anger that then they can use to say, you see how evil Laman and Lemuel are, <laughs> right? Rather than it's not just the way it's communicated. I, I appreciate what you're saying, Jen, but I think it's also what is the meaning here, which is I under how to say it that you understand what it is you're asking of someone else. You you are talking to them like they're really your equal, and you understand something about what why they might be getting stuck around that, and you're talking to them like with the dignity and compassion of how you might feel if you were in their shoes. So it's it's really the way you see the other person, and so rebuking is probably not going to be something you're doing with a sibling or an adult child, (laughs) 
you're going to be more stepping into their shoes and thinking about what their interests are and why they might be getting caught up in something. You're, you're speaking to the best in them. You're speaking to the part of them that wants to live well also. And you're also taking time to understand what they experience and they see that you do not see. Because when we're too confident that we've got the right way, we, we're no longer seeking to understand and we're actually maybe more blind ourselves than we realize while we're busy trying to tell others how to be. That's really interesting. As, as you were talking, I was, I was thinking, I, I've not done this exercise to go through and count, but um, it'd be interesting to do to count how many times each character in First Nephi asks questions and what kind of questions they ask. Uh, just on my kind of gut level, as uh, having read through it, but again, not not done the the, the tally. Uh, Layman and Lemuel do ask some open ended questions. There are moments where they're they're seeking meaning. There are other moments yeah. where where they're not. Right? Uh, Nephi does ask a lot of questions. Sometimes they're rhetorical questions. They're they're, they're questions um, that that are kind of loaded. So, so yeah, as you talk about really trying to get into and empathetically get into the, the, the mind space, the headspace of somebody else is, is an important tool. I wanted, I wanted to ask you, you know, so as we look throughout this, this narrative in First Nephi, it's easy for us to mark and list off all the kind of presenting symptoms of the conflict, like brothers beating up other brothers, right? People, people threatening to kill a prophet, you know, tying people up, you know, I mean, we, we, we you know, beheading people, right? There, we, we, we can talk about the presenting issues, but, but it, it seems that, um, at least as, as I've learned, you know, we can look at the presenting issues, and of course, those matter. But generally, they are speaking to the, their their underlying causes underneath the surface. That there's something deeper going on than than just you know this one instance of brothers beating up brothers. So, can you talk about what what's this relationship between presenting symptoms and underlying factors in 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 family conflict? Well, when there's really binary behavior, what I mean is there's extremes. There's the over over functioning, and then there's the sibling that's in jail, and so on. You know, it, I, I don't mean to say that it's always about the culture of the family because people can have oppositional defiant disorder, have neurological challenges, and so on. But often, when there's extremes in a marriage, somebody with very high desire, someone with very low desire. There's often a lot more contempt going on in the family system than meets the eye. And so what happens often in a strong hierarchical family is you have those that are compliant and get the sort of good boy status, and then those that are defiant because they feel like they're losing their agency if they just go along. And so they're kind of more in the, like, I don't get the credit that that my brother gets, so I'm going to get attention by rebelling. Because bad breath is better than no breath. And so so then that kind of will create division. And often then somebody gets to be even a better student, even more invested in their parents' approval, and the other one gets even more and more angry. And so those divisions often are, they kind of mask dysfunction in those that look like the over-functioners. And they mask strength in the one that's rebelling and wisdom in the one that's rebelling. And so you have to often get at the heart of what is in the family structure and what's going on in the leadership of the family structure. 
So this is great. I I mean, obviously, we have a very short time frame here to analyze um, non-existent invisible families. But I would love it if you could maybe share if a family feels that that dynamic that you've just described is playing out. What are some positive and affirmative things that either as siblings, if it, if we're older siblings or as parents, that we can do to try to break that cycle um, because we see how it plays out. It plays out with continuing and escalating conflict, just like you've described. So so we'd love our listeners to have some strategies that they could start to explore. If they see this happening in their own family, what are some ways that they can affirmatively try to think differently about the, their family members and break out of it? You want to listen to the unrighteous one. You want to listen to the underfunctioning one because they have a lot more information than we want to think. Um, that is, a lot of times, this is just sort of family therapist speech, but it's, you know, like the family trash can. It's the one that kind of is the scapegoat for the family, often is carrying a burden of the, in the family that the family isn't ready or able to integrate yet. They don't want to grow into more wisdom. They want their worldview to prevail. And so they kind of dismiss or hurt the one that they don't want to deal with the truth that one holds. And so if I were doing family therapy with with Lehi's family, I would want to talk first to Layman and Lemuel in a family session in which they could talk about what is it like to be Nephi's brother? What's it like to be Lehi's son? And what do you wish they understood about your experience? And what do you think that they don't see about themselves? And just to challenge the one up, one down by really elevating the experience of the one down and how much they actually understand. Because when you're in the, well, God called me and I'm doing everything right, you can be really blind to your own liabilities and what it's like to be in relationship with you. And so, you know, if... Nephi and Lehi could repent a little bit, right? Look more at what, how they're, they may well be called of God, but the way that they're handling that calling is working against the well-being of the family as a whole, that uh, they may be a part of the murmuring, right? And so if you can start to confront your role in your family member's dysfunction, to use that language, or their underfunctioning, well, then you start to get a little more humble. You start to get a little more fair. You start to like say, like maybe I need to do more for them and their benefit. And then I would be talking to Layman and Lemuel after that about how they're using rebellion as a kind of pseudo-agency, right? That they're, they're so busy just rebelling and proving that they're not going to be bossed around that they're not actually owning their strength and they're actually reinforcing the power hierarchy by just rebelling against it rather than who am I and what do I actually think and what is my relationship to God and what do I feel is best and I'm actually working against my own self-respect when I'm so busy just rebelling against Nephi. So it's helping the underdog start to own more of their actual strength and not just be in reaction to the top dog. I love that. And okay, let's let's keep this family in therapy. Okay. I, I, I like mm-hmm. this. Un- unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think you had an office in the wilderness in, in Bountiful. No, um, no, there's there kind of a shortage of mental health professionals uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, at, at the time. But um, let, <laughs> let's say this, say this family keeps coming back to you for, for therapy. 
I mean, there there is real harm that's that's being done, right? We we, we can say, okay, Nephi's words, you know, Nephi could be a little softer, a little gentler, a little more understanding. He could ask more questions, but 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 also, you know, he's the one getting beat up. Uh, he he he's the one whose whose life is is being threatened. You know, it, there is the electric shock thing, so so there is some reciprocal stuff uh, a little bit later in the the, the story. But but how how do you talk uh, with families um, where there is real harm being done by some parties, um, even if they they do feel like they're under recognized, under appreciated, and, and these dynamics are playing out? But but we also have to address the harm. Oh, for sure, and you have to stop harm first, right? You can't whatever the cause. You can't have somebody abusing or harming anyone, right? Even if you understand how they got there. Yeah. Uh, so you do have to set limits and, you know, maybe Lehman and Lemmy would need to be in jail, but you still might conduct some sessions <laughs> <Right>. from jail. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, you, you definitely don't want to be complicit in harm, even if it's understandable as a reaction. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so, so I, I want to continue this. With, so, you've talked about what you know, especially this, this this conflict between Nephi and his brothers. What about Lehi and Sariah? What do you what do you see going on here? We have this this great chapter. Uh, you, you 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 mentioned it a little bit earlier. We we oftentimes talk about Sariah murmuring and and, and doubting and and so forth. And and Jen talked about Lehi comforting her. What 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 do you see in in, in this marriage? Or what were what would be some of the questions? that you'd want to ask them or some insights you'd want to help them uh, bring out as, as you talk to them? I mean, this is, this is me speaking from this, from 2024, sure. yeah. looking back on this story. So I'm a little bit uncomfortable, but I guess what I see is that, and this was just what the culture was at the time, is it's a hierarchical relationship marriage, right? And so Lehi's getting the information and Soraya is good for believing and going along. And if she doesn't believe and go along, you know, that's part of her deficiency because she should believe and go along. And I think it's really only more recently that we've started to think about marriage differently than that. You know, just a hundred years ago, women got the vote because why have a redundant vote? That was the thinking. <laughs> if a, a man's going to vote, the wife is of course going to do the same thing. Right. And, and so, um, just women's agency is a is a relatively newer way of thinking. And so we're much more, at least the work I do, is much more around creating collaborative partnerships and where men and women occupy different uh, ways of being in the world. But how do you actually value and collaborate and work together? That's not the marriage model I see there. And so again, Sarai is in a more dependent position. It was culturally how it was. But it's not really – Lehi gets a bigger vote, right? They're not, they're not counseling together on whether or not they're going in the wilderness that we see, at least from the scriptures. They're, Lehi's had a vision and un- understands what they need to do, and so she goes along. Now, she may trust him and know that he's holding her best interests at heart. I think she does because she is comforted by him. But that's the quality that I see in that at least that scriptural account. So – 
One of the things that I find so interesting, again, in that account is we've got this narrative where Nephi goes head to head with his brothers and he kind of explains to them where he thinks they're going wrong. And they respond essentially with violence. Um, they're frustrated and angry. And then very shortly thereafter, we have some newcomers to the family who engage. And we've got, you know, daughters, the daughters of Ishmael who are able to engage in the same situation in a way. They are able to kind of move into a family dynamic that's new to them. They've just joined this family or, you know, joined this whole endeavor. And something about the quality of their engagement is clearly very different because they are able to not only... Um, de-escalate the conflict, but they are able to um, create a situation in which, for one of the first times, we see Laman and Lemuel feel sincere sorrow for something that they've done, right? And so even though in this situation, we obviously have women, just like you've said, who are in a hierarchical relationship, they somehow were able to exercise their agency to um, resolve a conflict in a way that other people were not. And that is something that I, I find so inspiring in this particular set of chapters. And so I, I would ask you if you could share with us maybe some ideas about he, even if your situation isn't ideal, we need to work towards having the relationships that you've talked about be equal and fair and just and collaborative. Um, but what are some things that we can do in our families currently to communicate in a way that is going to actually be more effective? Like there's going to be bring peace. And I don't mean peace as in peacekeeping. I mean, peace as in peacemaking, right? That is going to yeah. bring people to a point where they're willing to change. Do you have any suggestions on that? What, how to do that well and how to do it poorly, maybe? Yeah. Well, I, how to do it poorly is with judgment, condescension, telling people how they should be and, and the kind of the assumption of when are you going to get it together? You know, kind of you're looking at them as a, as a problem. I mean, the opposite of that is you look at the best in people and you're appealing to the best in them and you're appealing to what they also want. Like in this country, 99 plus percent of us want a peaceful environment that's safe for our children where we can thrive and do well and have growing businesses and take care of the needy. And, you know, we want, all want that. And then we get into these ideas where we see the other one is not wanting it and working against it and a threat uh, rather than what are they, how do they experience society? Why do they think as they do? So you're seeing them like they're like me and they're good people. You know, we all do evil, but they're basically decent people. So why do they see it so differently? There's an answer to that, you know, and there's probably a good reason for seeing it differently. And there's something I can learn from them. Because when you feel understood, you're open to understanding the other. You're open to their input. If you don't feel understood and you just feel judged, you're like, forget it. I'm not going to listen to your idea about how I should be because you have no interest yeah. in understanding me. So you have to genuinely want to understand and tolerate the discomfort of understanding. Because sometimes when I've understood people who think differently than me, I'm like, oh, you know, I want to like tell them how they're wrong because <laughs> I don't want to grow. That's the thing. It's not because they're so wrong. It's that I don't want to actually have my mind get pushed by their different perspective. And so I have to often just calm myself down enough to say like, I, you know, am strong enough to claim truth wherever it is. And if it's in some, it's, if it's in a different way of thinking 
and I need to grow my own perspective, I want to be able to do that. So it's, it's like twofold. It's both seeking to understand and then that person feels understood and they're more receptive to you. But also your view is getting shaped and made wiser by really understanding another perspective so that what you have to say might actually be valuable. I, I would love if you would extrapolate a little bit because I think this is something I could personally learn a lot. How do you prepare yourself to receive that truth? Like if you're in a relationship, a longstanding relationship that you really matters to you, which is true of most families, what are the things that are in my control that I can do um, to prepare myself to hear, you know, someone else's experience in a way that I, you know. So my, my son gave me permission to talk about this a little bit because I've, I've brought it up before on a podcast. But when he was in his late adolescence or late high school, he was really struggling and was moving into depression and really having a hard time. And, you know, in one of my conversations with him, he said, Mom, you are a terrible listener. Okay. So you're like, I'm like, <laughs> this is your whole identity. I'm right? a professional listener. That's what I Go do. Go straight okay. to my core, buddy. Thanks. <laughs> exactly. He's like, why anybody would pay for you? I have no idea. No, he didn't say that. But still, he was telling me I was a terrible listener. And the truth was, he was dead on because with other people's kids, I'm a great listener. With him, I was a terrible listener. Because the stakes were high, right? His stakes were yeah. high and I didn't want what he was saying. I'm like, well, just don't do that. Just don't think about it that way. Like, think about it this way. I'm in a panic because he's struggling in a way that I don't understand, that I didn't anticipate. And so that was just really good self-awareness because I was then thinking, you know, in the next, you know, before I had the next conversation with him, like, how am I going to help and love someone that I'm too panicked to actually understand? Like, what is going on for him is going on for him, whether or not I listen to it. <laughs> and so, and how he thinks, you know, whether or not I can shape it is another question, but I, I ought to at least understand how he thinks. And he should at least understand it by me listening to him because that's all I've got. And if I'm just going to love him, this was my own self rebuking. <laughs> I just, I just have to know who he is, even if it's painful or hard or scary for me. And so it was just like calling myself to repentance around, I'm not doing my job. And if I'm going to do my job as his parent and the one that loves him, then I just have to calm myself down and tolerate knowing what is true. I also think, this is the other way, it's like, I remember my brother way back before faith crises were cool and everything was going through a faith crisis. <laughs> was going through a faith crisis. I was like just starting at BYU as a freshman, and he was had, was reading some books in early church history and was talking to me about them. And I was completely uninterested in hearing his experience. And I remember as I was you know driving home that night, I remember praying and, and thinking, you know, I'm going to just avoid my brother like as an act of faith. And I remember just the clear sense that that's faithless of you, right? Because if the truth can withstand loving your brother, hmm. right? And it's a similar idea, like truth and love go together. And if I love my son, I need to know what is true. And I can tolerate knowing what's true, even if it's hard. And that's going to help me be better, wiser, and more capable of love. So gird up your loins and go in there and listen and just listen to what he has to say 
and don't give the yeah, but because that's not listening. And don't be spending the time that he's talking, thinking about what you're going to say, because that's also not listening. Seek to understand, which is an active process. I've got another question, but I think I think that leads right into a question, Jen, that 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 you had that, that you wanted to ask about relationships. Yeah, I love Marjorie Hinckley's saying, I was lucky enough to grow up with her and President Hinckley in my ward. And she's just, I can't express what a warm, generous human being she was. And she has this beautiful saying about families where she says, above all else, preserve the relationship. And I thought it was lovely when I was younger. And it has become, for me, I think one of the saving graces of parenting, right? The, just this voice in my head, above all else, preserve the relationship. I think Layman and Lemuel give us a really great example, Nephi, um, this whole family, of the fact that people have agency, they make different choices, and um, even faithful behavior on the part of parents or families doesn't result in overriding that agency. And so we are going to, if we're good people, we're going to do everything you've just shared with us. We're going to do everything we can to prepare ourselves to hear truth. We're going to try to um, break negative family dynamics. We're, you know, we're going to be affirmative in trying to improve our families, but there are going to be limits to our ability to control the outcomes, right? We just all have to acknowledge that. And so sometimes we find ourselves, I think, increasingly in situations where families, parents feel like they have to, um, in this really high stakes environment where family matters so much in the restored gospel and in our culture, they feel like I have to kind of either choose between God or I have to choose between my children, right? And and in that high stakes situation, there is just often this, I think, a feeling of how, which relationship do I preserve, right? And, and I would, I don't necessarily believe that that, I think that's a false dichotomy, as I guess I will just present my opinion that, that is completely a false dichotomy. And I would just love some of your professional, personal, spiritual insight on how people who truly believe, who believe, you know, that there is a Christ who redeems and that we can have a relationship with him, how he can guide us towards not being pulled into that dichotomous thought pattern, right? That we can preserve both of those relationships even while existing in a place where our families might not be functioning or we might not be getting the outcomes that we'd once hoped for. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think there's nothing like parenting to teach you about your limits on Amen. control. <laughs> I mean, especially as you have young adults and so on, and it's humbling and, uh, and it's pushing you to learn more about what love actually is. And probably my greatest example of this is my own mother who, you know, she, was is just a person who is deeply and genuinely accepting of all of her children, those in the church and those who've left. Uh, she just is able to do that. And like without qualification, you don't have this sense like there's a secret favoritism going on. She just genuinely loves, even if she worries about maybe their well-being in some cases, right, or whether or not their lives are accruing to something that will actually be happy for them. But that was never connected to her love and valuing of them. And I think she just saw it as like, well, God is bigger than our understanding. And and even though she had you know children who were not going to church and all that, she was just like, look, I know how good my children are. And God knows how good my children are. And I trust that it's going to be okay, right? Because I'm not here to judge why they're choosing what they're choosing because I'm not in their experience. And I have my own 
issues to get worked out. I've got my own sin to get worked out. So she just wasn't busy making decisions about how others should be acting or how God was going to judge it because she didn't, she wasn't in their experience. And so my mom, you know, I love the the parable of the prodigal son because this father represents, of course, Israel and his sons. They had some, I wanted to like to do some therapy with them too, some of the same problems. They were called, <laughs> called to do something that God needed, right? But some of the family issues were interfering with the mission in a sense, right? Um, and but with the prodigal son, the father of the prodigal son, like he's like, I love both of my sons, and the one that's having a hard time is the stalwart son, the righteous one, who's saying, Wait a minute, I've been here earning all the credit, and you throw a big party for the wayward one, you know. <laughs> and he's like, No, you don't you understand? Like, you know, maybe the one who doesn't sin has an easier life because he doesn't have to live in some of the negative consequences, but both are beloved equally. And so I think it's just like, it's not my, when we think, okay, my, my sense of myself as a parent is being measured by my child's behavior. Well, you're going to have a hard time loving your child then because your sense of self is walking around on them and their decisions. If you can though say like, that's not my job, that's their job. That's their agency. My job is to love them, to see them the way God sees them, to value them, to care about their well-being. You can care about them making decisions that work against them, of course, because you care about them. But that's different than you're going to get them to choose differently. That's on them. And if you love them, well, then they trust you and they trust your input. And, you know, one of my brothers who was gone from the church for 20 years and kind of hit a crisis point in his life, and then he just wanted to come back. And he came back to church and was in the back of a sacrament meeting and they sang an, a, a favorite hymn and he just cried and cried and cried and he he just wanted to come back and he's gonna talk about it but you know there was no sense of having to save face mm-hmm. with his family other mm-hmm. right with his family just could just come back and it was like you know we still love you in in either way and and if this is what you need we're glad you're here so it's uh that just means there's no barrier no no ego to protect in those decisions. So I will hand this to Patrick, but I will just say as if I could give any advice to parents of young children, I think Jennifer's advice here is spot on. And I I think from my own experience, as kids grow up and start to make these decisions, if we want to retain the relationship with them, we have to transition to the kind of relationship you've just talked about. One that's not based on fear, not based on control, not based on love. And I just wish I had done that and practiced that from the very beginning, rather than having to come to learn it at at tension points in my life and in my kids' lives. And so I think it's easier if we can just say that is the way we want to parent and we can practice it and practice it when the stakes feel a little bit lower, it's going to be easier to do it when the stakes get really high. Yeah. And I'll also underscore, I mean, for, for my money, the parable of the prodigal son, that is the gospel. Uh, right there, that that is, for for me, that's the uh, the purest articulation of, of of the gospel that the Jesus ever gave, and I, I always think about it as the parable of the prodigal father. Actually, he's prodigal with his love. He's 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 just uh, he, he will just give his love anywhere and and everywhere. He's not stingy uh, with 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 his love. 
Um, okay, so let me let me ask. We're we're running out of time. Let me ask one one more uh, question before we we kind of wrap things up. We all know, you know, those of us who have read the Book of Mormon before know not only how it begins but also how it ends, right? And and this is it's it's a tragic story. And, and spoilers for anybody who hasn't read the Book of Mormon yet, but but <laughs> but but, but, but it, uh, it does not end well. This this begins with just a family squabble. Right. This is just brothers fighting. Every every family has this or kids who disagree with their parents. Right. Uh, Every single family, I'm sure, in the history of families can relate to this. And it ends in genocide. Right. I mean, this is the ultimate. I mean, what I've heard described as kind of conflict tornado where it just spins and spins and then brings in more people into it, you know, and people get sucked in and more issues get sucked in and it gets more and more energy. It feeds and feeds and feeds until now all of a sudden it it is just destroys everything in its path, including the entire Nephite civilization. So so how do we stop the conflict tornado? Right. If, if we feel ourselves in a conflict, whatever that might be, right, in our families, in our workplaces, in a ward, in our marriage, whatever that might be, what is something that, that, that I can do um, to, to stop the conflict tornado in my life? Yeah, this is so much the work I do is trying to stop tornadoes, <laughs> tornadoes because they make people so unhappy and yet they're so easy to do. Yeah, right. Because they do take on their own energy, right? They do. And destruction is easy and makes you feel powerful. I mean, and, I mean, really, it does. And being constructive is harder and requires a lot more precision and self-control and so on. And so we have destructiveness is tempting, that is. And what I mean by that is uh, not necessarily getting a rod and beating somebody up destructive, but just the indulgence of how how to say of vilifying the other person that disagrees with you that alone i can't believe they said that can you believe they said that and then i said this really nice thing and then they said this really ridiculous thing and then i said this really reasonable thing and and we just see ourselves that way and what do we do when we feel that way rather than that inkling inside of us like maybe there's you played a role maybe a small one but maybe you had something to do with their ridiculous position Instead of confronting that and taking a look at your own role in the problem, which is hard to see because we literally have beams in our eyes and we can see the beam in our partner's eye or our neighbor's eye, that we, we, we want to stay blind to ourselves rather than look at ourselves. So it's always looking at ourselves. And what we do instead of that is we go and look for accomplices. Can you believe that, you know, you see people getting a divorce and the first thing they start doing is getting accomplices. Who's going to be on the wife's side? Who's going to be on the husband's side? And it's just a very intuitive thing because you you want backup for your position when you don't want to self-confront. And then it's very easy to get caught in a narrative of the bad guys and we're the good ones. And it feels good. Tribalism is at our core. Feels good to be like we're in the good tribe. And all those idiots over there. I mean, you get on YouTube and you see so-and-so takes down, you know, political opponent, whatever. You know, just, it just, and people like that because like, oh, it feels good to see the other side getting taken down. And that is so bad for us. That is so bad for us. And it makes us feel good, but we're in a distortion about reality and about other people that is destructive. Yeah. 
It is. I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm part of the evil tribe today, right? I mean, <laughs> we're all yeah. the hero of our own story. So. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. I just add to this, one of the lessons that is, in some ways, it's so sad that you see a family conflict spiral up into this tornado that, you know, results in cultural conflict and war and ultimately this mass slaughter. I think actually what that can also be is incredibly empowering to us to realize that we actually have a lot of power as peacemakers in some critical moments to honestly change the course of civilizations, to change the narratives, certainly of our own families, right? I think hopefully enough of us know enough family history to know stories of at least one or two people who have stepped in at pivotal moments to alter for good the course of our family. Right. And, and yes, I, yeah, and true. I don't want to white knight that too much because just like you said, productive work, the productive work of building these strong, healthy relationships is long and slow and plotting and requires us to be fairly self self-sacrificial. But I think the payoff is, is big. And I just want to right. acknowledge and that. And what you do makes a difference, even in those little moments, right? Uh, I think it's David Brooks that just wrote a book about understanding others. I, I've only heard him talk about it, not read it yet, but about just those moments of actually asking questions, seeking to understand, building a bridge, understanding, you know, not what do you do or what, but how did you come to that? What is your story? Because it re we learn a lot by reaching to others, but also then it impacts how they feel and how they see the world. And so really thinking of ourselves as moral agents that have an, we have these ripple effects and to not undervalue that. So we're not going to change the world, any one of us, but the small good we do makes a difference and never forget it, just as our indulgent moments make a difference in a negative way. Yep. Well, great. Okay. So we want to wrap up by asking you uh, one final question that we ask of all of our guests in this world of conflict and uh, conflict tornadoes and uh, everything else. Children. Uh, what children. Are, children, right? <laughs> what are one or two things or places or ways that, that you find peace? Okay. Well, I would say, hmm, it's hard to answer in one quick question, but I would say I just... I look to do things that are good because when I do good, it actually is a reminder that good is real, right? And that, and there is good around us because I think when it's, you can become aware of the dark and the dark can feel consuming, the antidote to that is to do good because you are an agent and can make the world better and can shape not just another's experience, but your own experience. And I really look for beauty, like I listen to classical music and beauty in nature and beauty in other people, the, the good that, you know, when I see clients do courageous things, it like touches my soul, it helps me remember that courage and doing the right thing is so important. So it's just both creating it and looking for it and um, holding on to it, you know, so, and I, I love my husband and being next to him gives me peace too, so. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty good testament from a family therapist, right? Helping us all realize that that's possible and something we should reach for, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. Jennifer, thank you so much. I've learned a lot from this and, and I know everybody else will too. Thank yeah, you for your expertise, you. for, for your faith and everything you bring to, to bring peace into the world. Thank you so much. Fun to talk to both of you. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. We really appreciate it. We just want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast and also to rate and review it. 
We love hearing feedback from listeners, so please email us at podcast at mweg.org. We also want to invite you to think about ways that you can make peace in your life this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Proclaim Peace, a proud member of the Faith Matters Podcast Network. Faith Matters holds expansive conversations about the restored gospel to accompany individuals on their journey of faith. You can learn more about Faith Matters and check out our other shows at faithmatters.org.